This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in studio is uh, Nicholas Nick Cowpers. So welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm uh, really happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to, it's great to have you on campus and uh, um, talking to us, uh, uh, fellow, fellow Berkeley alum. Uh, Go Bears. Uh, Go Bears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Are they still living off the sort of Aaron Rodgers fumes yeah, there from yeah. the... <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I get Cal. Yeah, those were, those were good days. He sort of uh, was there. He, he's, he's, he's taken some interesting turns that I questioned his education. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, he would have been mandated to get vaccinated at Berkeley, so he was still there. Yeah, definitely, definitely that would have been the case. Uh, welcome. And also, so um, uh, Nick is a, is a PhD candidate, soon to be PhD uh, in the Department of Political Science there, but uh, uh a big, a big round of applause. Uh, soon to be assistant professor at National University of Singapore. Thank you. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a great um, uh, that's a real plum for the listeners. Uh, in uh, and uh, we'll uh, we'll hear a lot. We'll hear a lot of you. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to be back in the region after uh, two years during COVID, not being able to travel out there. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. No. And we're uh, and we're excited to. Uh, to to get a lot more, uh, I assume the the publication gates are going <laughs> to open and flow. Um, and uh, today you talked to us uh, uh, about um, what you call failing the test: state building, nation building, and civil service recruitment in in Indonesia. Um, maybe set a context for our listener. Um, this is something that's been in the news: uh, um, uh, unrest over something is we might think as mundane as a civil service exam. Can you give us some context? Right. So uh, at the uh, beginning of the talk that I gave earlier today, uh, I sort of described some events in which communal violence uh, sort of flowed from the results of these civil service examinations. And I think that sort of broader context in Indonesia is just the overwhelming desire that people have for a government job. And then the sort of intensity of frustration that they experience when they don't, when they don't get that and when that reality doesn't come and to so pass. So some of this communal violence is is these are so these are from uh, as, aspirant. Uh, these are people who've taken the civil service exam and not passed and are and are angry about it. That's right. That's right. So these are these are people who have taken the tests um, and in general are frustrated with the results and they they turn to violence. And this is you know the ep- the the episodes that I describe at the beginning of the talk are from 2020 or 2021. So they're comparatively recent events. Um, but these sort of events have, have sort of been occurring in Indonesia over the last 20, 30 years, and you can find evidence of them in places like Sumba. There was a big event in 2000 um, where some frustration over the results of civil service examinations boiled over into an event that left about 20 people dead. So this is, a, I think, a, a big thing that a lot of people care about in Indonesia. And what's interesting is, I guess, the, the participants in this kind of uh, unrest, these are, these are all college-educated um, to, to take the exam, right? They have to be, yeah. I mean, again, college educated. Um, this know, isn't like this isn't like sort of underclass mass, you know, blind anger. This is a pretty f- 
<laughs> focused. Uh, right. I mean, I, so I, you know, I didn't survey the people that were present at these episodes of okay. criminal violence. So it's not, it's possible that some of them are, sure. okay. you know, but That's I think in point. general, the requirements to apply for a job in the Indonesian civil service uh, to be what's called PNS, uh, it stipulates you have to have a college degree. And so these are, yeah, generally middle-class Indonesians who are well-educated um, and, and can sort of oftentimes leverage their, their cultural capital uh, to sort of make these events even bigger and bring in more folks. And so um, some of the some of the phenomenon you, you focus on are um, state building versus nation building and how those can be at odds with each other. So... Um, Maybe define terms a little bit. What do we mean by state building and nation building? Right. So I think state building, um, I sort of define it recursively. So it's the, the act of building up state, state capacity, by which I think we mean um, how a state goes about penetrating society and seeing its objectives realized, right? And so if you create policy, you want to see that through and see it actually achieve. And so the workings the of this civil service bureaucracy would right. be part of that. And so I think, yeah. you know, for instance, in the, in the broader research, I make the case um, that using these exams to recruit civil servants uh, uh, will lead to gains in the sort of quality of civil servant, which will then boost state capacity, right? And so using exams to recruit civil servants is tantamount to, to an act of state building. Meanwhile, I think nation building, um, you know, I sort of draw heavily on Ben Anderson's work on this topic. I think it's the way in which a government or a ruler goes about building a sense of horizontal camaraderie across a diverse population. And I think Indonesia has been very successful in this historically. Um, some of the, right. The, one of the, one of the, one of the historical longest shots, but, but one of the most successful. That's also. right. That's yeah. right. And I think, you know, Ben Anderson talks a lot about the role of language in Bahasa Indonesia as a national language mm-hmm. and forging a, a sort of sense of uh, solidarity across a diverse population. I think that's true. And I think it's worth emphasizing that that was a government policy, really. I mean, at the moment of independence, about 25% of Indonesians spoke Indonesian. And now, I mean, that number, I don't know what it is, but it's high 90s, right? And so it's, right. it's been a, a government policy through education in particular. And so I think both these things, state building and, and nation building, are things that governments do, right? Nations and states aren't just out there in the wild. I think it's, it's an important thing to recognize that these are outcomes of policy. And so, so one of your conclusions is that if you, if you have the the organs that are trying to build the state this bureaucracy if if you have uh, a large pool of them that are very unhappy enough to even like demonstrate or to 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 you know burn something down um that that's this tension between uh that it's 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 going against the the aims of of building a state or a community that's that's right so i think you know the the case i'm trying to make is that exams are good as an act of state building as I, as I said, if your bureaucrats are more competent, uh, they're going to be able to execute policy more effectively. And so this builds state capacity. It's state building. Um, but it creates, as I show, I think these sort of significant attitudinal rifts in which losers are frustrated and, and aggrieved. Um, and, and they're you know, going to identify less with the Indonesian national identity. And so there's this trade-off right, between state building and nation building here. Maybe we should also uh, talk about just... Um what what these civil service exams um, are and how, how they how they look and especially the kind of the uh, um, this kind of automated process and then and then maybe what they used to be historically in in especially in under under the previous president dictator Suharto. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, the new computerized civil service exam system it has there are two tiers. The first is the basic competency test, which has 
three sections. So it's got a general intelligence section, and this contains things like arithmetic questions even. Okay. And then it has like a... Social science stuff? Or yeah, I think there's some logic questions in there okay. too. And, and by the way, as an aside, you can buy Kaplan's sort of t- textbooks at a Gramedia in Jakarta to study. That's a bookstore to study for these exams. So it's a, there's a whole test prep industry around it. So the first section is the general intelligence test. The second section is a personality test. So this will contain questions on, hmm. you know, situational stuff. If your boss asks you to do something illegal, do you do it or not? And then the third section is a national character test. And this contains the most interesting questions from my perspective. It contains questions, like I mentioned during the talk, uh, about the Majapahit Empire, for instance. It also contained a question about the correct proportions of the Indonesian flag, which is 160 centimeters by 90 centimeters, right? And so... I would have failed that. Yeah. (laughs) Critical information. Um, And then the second stage is this specialist exam, which is, you know, there's a lot of variation, but it's basically asking questions about the Depending on your job, on the job. Depending on your job. That's right. So if if you're going to be like a government surveyor, it'll have questions about map map making and geography and stuff. So, So, and then those two things are integrated, the scores are, right? And so, and so, on the on the surface, it see this seems like the uh uh and and it, and as you say, from what you can tell, it seems to be sort of sort of pr- pretty pretty bulletproof in terms of yeah cheating and uh um right. It's not. It's and yeah. I think that's right. Um, and I, you know, I think there are special cases where, particularly in the specialist exam, it's not always computerized. So in the case of being a diplomat you need to write an essay in a foreign language. And so this is a, this can't be computerized. Yeah. Um, so prison, okay. prison guards, for instance, this is an interesting one. Prison guards have a physical assessment of push-ups oh. and pull-ups. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, that's not computerized. So there's these, there's variations on the specialist yeah. exam that I think could be gamed. I haven't seen a lot of evidence of it. And I think the protest that a lot of local governments had to the introduction of the system is indicative. They were very, you know, not looking forward to this new computerized system precisely because I think it would impinge on their ability to engage in foul play. And so, yeah, I mean, and I guess that leads us to uh, the, the civil service position um, was a, was a, um, a political favor um, that, that, that one could hand out, right? Historically it has been, there, there's, there, would it be would it be wrong to say there was a lot of abuse within the civil service system in Indonesia under under the dictatorship? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think that's an understatement. Um, <laughs> there's a a really good paper on the market for civil service jobs in which the authors and I forget their name now, but they surveyed current civil servants about how they got their job, and what they found was that a lot of people actually paid to get a salary. They were paying for these jobs. And they, f- they found that the average payment in exchange for a government job was about one year's salary as a civil servant. Um, and so I think this is how it's... Right, so it was just bribery. A lot of people would pay to get... Yeah, they would bribe to get the job. Um, you know, that being said, there was, in theory, a paper-based examination system. And there are these... But that, was that graded locally? It's graded locally. It's paper-based. You know, you uh-huh. lose the exam. Yeah sorry, we didn't see your application kind of thing. Um, but you look at these photographs from Jakarta, and this system was in place even until the early 2000s. And there are these photographs from Jakarta at Galora Bungarno, which is this huge stadium that seats 
50,000 people in Jakarta. And it is full with everyone taking a test in that stadium. <laughs> and they've all got their paper-based exam. And you just think, like, this yeah. isn't it, you know? <laughs> you, it wouldn't be hard to imagine somebody having a friend come in or or maybe, as you pointed right. out, people taking the exam for someone else. Or right. Called jockeying? That's called jockeying, yeah. Okay. And so you pay someone to take the exam for you. Um, and this is actually, I think, what prompted that episode of communal violence in Sumba that I was mentioning earlier was that the nephew of the Bupati got a job in the civil service, and it, uh, it was accused that he had used a jockey to get the job, right? And so, you know, there are these... One of the one of the inter- really interesting things that you point out is that um, that the way that existing inequalities in Indonesia, um, socioeconomic and, and 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 ethnic inequalities, are are ex- the the exams reflect those. Um, can you say a bit about like maybe the Java non Java tenor of some of the civil service success? Yeah, so I think you know there's. I think three ways to really think about cleavages in contemporary Indonesia. I think the first is uh, religious between Muslims and non-Muslims. And then I think you can also think about it ethnically between Javanese, Sundanese, or, or, or other ethnicities. And then I think the third way is regional between Java and then non-Javan islands. And what you see is that the largest difference in scores across those cleavages is between Java in non-Java. So I, I mentioned at the, during the presentation that residents of Java on average are failing the exam between 9 to 30% of the time, whereas those in Maluku are failing it up to 80, 75% of the time, right? And so it's that's a huge difference. Regional differences yeah. are really quite massive. And, and that's at the very first level? That's at the basic the competency basic, test. Basic yeah. competency. Right. And, and as you mentioned, like, you know, you brought Majapahit, like the, for the, the listener might not know, there's a lot, there's probably a lot of Java-centric basic competency stuff on this test, would there be? Yeah, so I think that comes out most in the uh, national character assessment. Um, you know, the Majapahit question was just one of many that emerged. The way that these exams work is they have a team of government psychometricians, which is an occupation I didn't know existed before this. Psychometricians. So this is a, a job. A great to, business card, yeah. To create tests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they have a team of about 14, and they put together a pool of 10,000 questions, and then each computer portal randomly samples a question. Oh, wow. So, so it's, you know, there's one question on the Majapahit Empire, which I think is indicative of something. But it's not that everyone had to answer that question. Is the basic one? Is it? Is it uh, um, like multiple choice, true, false, or is it? Is it? Uh, it's all multiple choice. Yeah, oh, it's all multiple choice. Okay, yeah. that's right. And and so the it, it's a it's a random sample from this database, and then and then also graded by by computer as well. That's right. Yeah, and uh, in some cases, although not all cases, there's um, a new. So, for instance, I saw this in Jakarta at the one of the recruitment events. They have a scoreboard in which the scores are live streamed <laughs> as the exam is being taken place while the families are assembled in an adjacent room. Oh, God. And so I'll tell you what. I mean, the pre- I, and so the, the kids are, and they are mostly kids. I mean, they're young, young. You know, oh, wait. So, so question by question, they can see. I think so. Yeah. I mean, so I know oh, that at the end, gosh. there's the scoreboard and they have the names and then a big red line like above, pass, below, fail. <sighs> but I think. By question, it's updating. And so it's, you know, that everyone is sighing and screaming. It's this really raucous. 
What one um so uh one thing I loved about you your your research design is you have a good mix of you know uh you've talked to a lot of people and I got a good qualitative but you also got some really great quantitative maybe say a bit about um how you got your survey data because it's really interesting yeah so I think um you know what we had to do was we wanted to do a survey in which we could get the attitudes of these applicants, but then we could link it to their backend database of test scores, right? The, the main object was to look at these attitudes across winners and losers. Yeah, okay. And fortunately, the civil service agency has done this really great, you know, to their credit, digitization pro- process, where they now have this sort of coherent database of all applicants in which you can see both their score on the exam, but also their address and then their email address. And so we leveraged that that database and we took their email address and we just sent them a link to an online survey. We said, would you like to take part in this, this research? And we had a lot of interest. I mean, this was an unsolicited survey and we got 5% of 3.6 million people to respond. And so I think, you know, some people might say that's not very much, but in the end it was over 200,000 people. And we were able to then link their, their responses to the database of test scores. So you can see who, who was successful and who was not and what those people, and, and how it differed. And then what their attitudes were. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, this is, I think, really, really sensitive data. Um, and so we had to take some pretty intense precautions in order to ensure that I, as the researcher, was never able to know the identity of the respondents. I could only see their scores. Yeah. And then their responses, but I didn't know their names or their addresses. So all of that, yeah. And meanwhile, the civil service agency, we don't want them getting the responses to the survey because these are sensitive questions, right? Right. And so we had to prevent, you know, them from ever seeing, being able to link these survey responses back to the backend database. It, it sounds like the, you know, civil service um, agencies have an, have an interest in um, getting good data. Good, so so I, it, it, would, it would seem kind of obvious that they would say like, hey, this could be useful for us too. Do they have, that your research yeah. and others could, could help them? Yes. That- yes. And that's, I, that's precisely how I think this whole research project was able to take place. I think, um, you know, this is just one component of the broader research agenda that uses this data set. Um, so one of the things that we're particularly interested in is from, I think, um, sort of economic perspective, what happens uh, in terms of occupationally to the people who don't become civil servants? I mean, this is a huge sort of mm. source of human capital in Indonesia, and the government is interested in tapping that. These are college-educated kids who just got denied a job. Do they go find a job elsewhere? What kind of job do they do? Um, do they come yeah. back and reapply, for instance? Uh, so these are the sort of questions that I think they were interested in, and we were also able to answer with this survey. And so that was, you know, a thing that was in it for them. I think the research project I had, they were probably less interested in, but but tolerated in exchange for the, <laughs> right. you know. Uh, uh, and a really interesting part of your uh, findings were um, the the perception of uh, bias and corruption and or corruption in in the exam and um, it might seem obvious, but how, I guess, how do winners and losers, um, represent those sentiments of, sentiments of bias and corruption in this exam process? Yeah. So, so uh, in terms of corruption, I, this is one thing that came out a lot during my qualitative interviews while I was preparing these questions, um, is that the, the, the folks who fail the civil service exam, 
find a way to tell themselves stories about why they failed. And one of the things they often would say is that there was some sort of corruption in the process. So one thing that the I election heard, was rigged. The election was rigged. <laughs> they, this is it. This is what they say. The exam was yeah. rigged. And so I heard this from at least two or three different uh, uh, interviewees that said, well, my computer portal must have been tampered with because I got disproportionately hard questions that were sampled from the database of backend test scores. And so I think, you know, this is, they're sort of suggesting that there was some sort of foul play, right? And I, right. I think having done a bunch of these interviews, one of the things I think I came to realize was like, this is just the story that they tell in order to make sense of what happened. It's, it's a salve to the wound. That's right. Of but I think at scale, I mean, when you're talking to one, two, three people, that's fine, you know. If that helps them sleep at night, then that's, that's fine. But I think at scale, it has real consequences for Indonesian policy. If 20% of people who fail the exam versus 5% of people who succeed, no, excuse me, it's 30% who fail versus 10 who succeed. If all those people believe the process was corrupt, just to tell themselves that it was corrupt, but it wasn't. They think their government is corrupt. They think their government is corrupt. And, and the, that, these were, these were, these were would-be... Would-be government officials. Yeah. That's right. Part of the state-building enterprise. Yeah. And now they're not part of that, and they might also be opposed to the nation-building <laughs> right. process, potentially. Right. Um, that's so 30% who, who don't succeed see corruption. And 10% know. that succeed. Wow. Say that. I mean, it, it has to be, you know, and, and maybe our listeners know, or maybe if they're not, like that, that corruption, collusion, nepotism are like the, 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 it's a, these are, these were real and, and, and not imagined uh, forces. And still that, that, are that, very that, real. And, right. That exist in Indonesia. So that's a pretty convenient, or uh, it could be a persuasive discourse, right? Right. Right. That's right. Um, and, you know, I, I want to be clear. I mean, I think those things still, very much exists in many aspects of Indonesian governance. I mean, I think corruption, petty bribery, all these things. However, I do think in the context of recruitment into the civil service, Indonesia has made great strides in cutting down on this sort of activity. Um, so I think it's just worth sort of emphasizing okay. that this is a narrow carve out of, of sort of transparent and, and clean governance. How does how does this corruption perception change depending on sort of how early uh, prospective civil servants are in the application process? Does it change the deeper they get into? Do you the, mean their age? The the, the deeper that so so I wish we should say that they're 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 different. They're all different lay, lay levels of right. testing they do. They get further along in the process. That's right. So those that fail on the initial test, the basic COMC test they uh, are more likely to believe the process to have been corrupt. But it's by a margin that isn't as large as were they to get to the final stage. And if they fail at the final stage, then they really believe it was corrupt, right? And so I think, wow. I think you know... So, so in the middle, it's it, the, the, those who fail at an intermediate stage? I think it's sort of linear. I think the further you get along, the more... In, you know, the further you get along before failing the more likely you are to believe it to have been corrupt. Right, because I'm, I'm, I'm sailing through this. I'm, I'm each, each hoop I'm, I'm succeeding in, and then... Right, I think that's one interpretation. I mean, yeah. I think there's also this, this sunk costs thing, which is like, you know, you just take one exam. Uh, you show up one day, and you take the exam, and then you fail. You're sort of like, eh, whatever. 
But I think if you keep going through this process, and it does, the recruitment process takes seven or eight months if you keep keep at it. And you get to the end, and then you find out you fail, you're going to be pretty angry, you know? And so I think you're going to make up, um, yeah. you're going to maybe turn to some of these exp- explanations. Um, maybe we should say a bit about the, what is the scale of Indonesian civil servants? Uh, I, I've here written down, it's over there, 3.6 million applicants. That's was right. That, was that in a year? So that's 3.6 million in the 2019 cycle, right? That feels like a lot. So it is a lot. I mean, it's a lot. Uh, so, some sense of perspective, like, say, other international examples, like how big the civil service is in Indonesia versus... Right. So I think there's a couple of statistics that help situate it for Indonesia specific okay. alone. So I think the first is that it's 2%, about 2% of the total population. The second is that to apply... For to the civil service in Indonesia, you need to be between 18 and 35 and also have a college degree. And so this means that 3.6 million is 47% of the total eligible population who can apply to the civil service in the first place. Right. And so this so is almost half of the eligible population is applying, is applying for a government for job. That's right. So it's, it's really quite large. Um, do, do we know like what it would it in the U S for example, like it's a good question. It it's just of? so decentralized in the United States that there's no, Central, right? But it can't. I, my, it can't be that high. It's not that high. But you look at. So I think India is a nice case okay. to uh, to look at for comparison. Um, India has a, a a sort of very famous central bureaucracy called the Indian Administrative Service, and this is an elite corps of about eight thousand bureaucrats. Each year they hire about three or four hundred. So this is three or four hundred openings. Every year they have close to a million applicants for those three or four hundred postings. And they go through the full written exam. So they have essays, multiple choice. And so they have to grade a million exams for these three or 400 posts, right? And so I think this sort of demand is really quite common across a lot of the, the post-colonial world, that particularly is it's low and middle income. Is the, are the, is the civil servants agencies, are they, um, are they tuned into um, sort of discourse in, I know I've seen it in, in regarding sort of U.S. sort of uh, standardized kind of testing and exams, some of the inherent challenges and biases biases in those, even something that is seen as, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, transparent and, and uh, uh, you know, do, are, those, are those arguments about the way that um, preparedness and inequities will also be duplicated in, something that seems like a fair meritocracy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of the conversation that I'm trying to, uh, in part, uh, contribute to and instigate with this this work in Indonesia. I think there's a recognition that the content of some of the questions may be either irrelevant or biased in some ways on the part of folks at the civil service agency. I think questions of inequalities and preparedness across regions or, or what have you is met with a lot more skepticism. And I think the impulse on the part of the Indonesian civil service agency, but also S- skepticism from the, from the civil service, they, 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 they don't believe that they, they believe that everyone's equally prepared. No, or? they recognize, oh, they recognize okay. that the, there are these inequities, but whether or not we should sort of remedy those inequities with say interventions to boost representation on the part of those groups. Okay. I like think quotas they, or like quotas yeah, yeah. Or, 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 or what have you is met with a lot of skepticism. And I think there's this sort of push 
you know, and I think I mentioned this during my presentation, there's, there's rather this push to try and build up these communities with, you know, talent from places like Java, for instance, through, they, they would say better governance. And then over time, you know, that they'll, these communities will, will see sort of better, better outcomes in terms of education. And then those inequities will be remedied. Um, I think those communities are predictably quite hostile to this view uh, in, in places like Papua or Maluku, for instance. Um, so I think there's perhaps like the seeds of a conversation on these things, but it hasn't really taken, I think. And, and, it's, and it's a particularly difficult one because uh, the, it's, it's not as, I don't want to say that the, like something like the U.S. is, is, is simple in terms of like racial, um, cha- but, the, but, the, but the, the, the diversity of Indonesian sort of the, the ethnic puzzle and and socioeconomic is 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 so dizzying that it's not just enough to say like you know like well we need to hold slots for African American and Latino like that, that's that, it's such a broad right I mean how do you do that in yeah, Indonesia like yeah. seven hundred language groups in Indonesia I mean the actual yeah sort of logistical numerical task of implementing a system of say quotas would be quite uh, challenging and demanding um, but you know as I mentioned I think one promising avenue. Because I think the most important cleavage is regional, and it cuts across, in particular, districts and, and islands. I think it, it would make sense to me to think about a system in which you could only apply for a government job in a place in which you've been a resident for, say, four or five years. And I think that's the sort of reform that, that might have some of these sort of better representational outcomes. Because as it, as it now stands, um, you, can, you can apply for a job in, in any part of Indonesia. That's right. um, and and get transferred. Is there is there shopping for, you know, comparison? Like, well, if I'm if I'm a say a, a strong Javanese candidate, but I I might not be able to cut muster in West Java. Maybe I apply to Papua, and my chances are better. Yeah. So I had an interview uh, with a young guy who had failed the civil service exam uh, the prior year, and I said, well, what are your strategies for for, for next year? And he said, well, there was just this earthquake in Poso, and I think there's Sumberdaya Manusia, or, or sort of latent human capital. I th- he said, I think I can contribute a lot over there, and I think I stand a much better job of, of there's a much better chance of getting a job over there if I were to apply there. So I think there is, yeah. you know, this, this dynamic where people are being strategic about where to get a government job, because tenure takes effect after one year, and then you're in. Um, so I think... It doesn't really matter where you get the job. You can. What does what does uh, a civil service job mean in terms of um, financial uh, class, uh, sort of um, retirement? Like, give some of the implications of of the clear listeners in of what, why this is such a plum right. thing. So, a lot of it is pecuniary. It, it has to do with the salary of a civil servant. It's on average, about 20 to 25% higher than equivalent jobs in the private sector. You're also given a really great pension that kicks in, I think, at 60, somewhere around then. It's a great pension. But I think the really important thing, because the demand for government jobs clearly outstrips just these pecuniary explanations. I mean, all these 3.6 million applying. And in some of my other work, I made the case that these individuals are also chasing the status and prestige of being an Indonesian civil servant. And if anyone has spent time in Indonesia, you know, 
being a PNS or, you know, a, a guru at the local school is really a, 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 an elevated status position within that community. And I think a lot of people are, are chasing that. And I think that helps to explain why people become so frustrated when they fail, right? Because what they're chasing is this, you know, heightened level of prestige or status, and then they're, they're not able to get it. Um, I think helps to explain why we see things like burning down a civil service branch, for instance. The, the historian me is always thinking back to um, sort of previous generations of, of a similar kinds of uh, um, impulse. So um, in, in uh, newly independent Indonesia and then in colonial Indonesia, maybe what did, what did bureaucracy mean and, and, how did it, and how did the civil service work in maybe in the, in the, in the Dutch era and then in the um, you know, uh, recently independent Indonesia? Yeah, so during the, the Dutch era, there was both uh, the uh, colonial uh, bureaucracy that was staffed by the, the Dutch, and then you had the indigenous bureaucracy that was staffed by indigenous Indonesians. And the, you know, in some of my other work, I've been really interested in the indigenous bureaucracy. In Java, it was called the Pangre Praja. It was a sort of historically staffed by members of the uh, Javanese aristocracy. Um, and the Dutch came in and put in place a lot of structures that concretized a lot of the, the norms around uh, governance in Java, what they perceived to be the norms around governance in Java, and sort of tried to graft it onto a European model of bureaucracy. And so there were some weird things that happened as a consequence. So uh, at the top of the indigenous bureaucracy was the Bupati, who was uh, served by the, the Pati or the assistant regent. And this is at, for, for each district in Java. And these were hereditary positions. Um, and oftentimes, uh, prior to the arrival of the Dutch, they weren't hereditary. And so there's a lot more sort of fluidity and transition. But now they become hereditary, and you're sort of locked into one family. Uh, and so this had sort of weird implications for, for frustrations on the part of the mass public in those places. But then below them, you had a series of other posts uh, that were held by also typically members of the local aristocracy. So Wedana is a, is a district controller. Um, and the Dutch insisted that these be sort of cordoned off for members of the aristocracy. So when you were submitting an application to these posts, in addition to submitting your cover letter or whatever, you had to submit a genealogical statement, uh, a surat asal usul, demonstrating that you had sort of been there for... Sort of the opposite of the modern civil service. That's like, right, right, that's yeah, right, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, so there were a bunch of unusual things that yeah. happened. Um, and, you know, this system, in a lot of ways, has, I think... Uh, it shaped contemporary in, uh, sort of governance structures in Indonesia, and there's still a sort of lasting legacy of it. And 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 although that there there aren't or any alive from from that era, the the as, as you as you brought up, there there are people who are now closing in on retirement who who actually were were hired under a a, a very corrupt system um, of uh, in Suharto's sort of before ninety eight. If you're if you were hired, you may have come in in um, in something that could have carried on a, the colonial, post-colonial legacy of this sort of... Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I think even in, in sort of more basic ways, the even the structure of Indonesian administrative institutions. So below the district, you have the sub-district or the Kecamatan, and that's headed up by a Pachamat, and that is the direct descendant of the Wedana system that I was talking about under the Dutch. 
And you can draw a direct line between those two roles. Um, and so there's a lot of these sort of implications. Uh, I, I, could, I couldn't help thinking about, um, I just had students read uh, This Earth of Mankind, and, uh, you know, part of it revolves around, a, you know, a kind of a, a would-be maybe civil state nation builder, uh, Minka, yeah. who is frustrated and, um, and uh, you know, but, but it's interesting that uh, talking about the disaffected, you know, college educate, like half of them and, and you know, a very tiny percentage of them get jobs. And there's some who are angry enough to go out the street to, to protest. Like it's, it's not, it's not dissimilar from a, a group of a hundred years ago of, of, uh, you know, nascent Indonesians who, who um, also were sort of were, hopes pinned by the Dutch on being, you know, hand in hand governing in perpetuity, uh, the, with, with these elites that, that they, they become angry, um, um, anti, and they, they, they not only undermine, they, they take down the colonial state. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that has animated my research around the bureaucracy around this time period, around independence in Indonesia is just the observation of how class-based the nationalist movement was in Indonesia. I mean, a lot of the sort of symbols and language around Indonesian nationalism and independence was really class-based. And I think it was motivated by this frustration on the, on the part of the masses towards these elites, uh, even indigenous elites, yeah. that had allied themselves with the Dutch. And I think this is the particular thing that allowed Indonesia to, I think, quite puzzlingly form as a cross-ethnic or inter-ethnic national identity is that everyone was frustrated with their elites because all their elites had thrown in their hats with the Dutch. And so it opened up yeah. this space for, I think, this shared frustration or shared resentment. Um, and if you look at, I was mentioning earlier, if you look at the biographies of a lot of these uh, you know, Indonesian nationalists that come from different regions of, of Indonesia, a lot of them are, you know, middle class, upper middle class intellectuals uh, who I think were sort of frustrated with not having been able themselves to share in power and being frustrated with their elites, right? So I think there's this interesting thing that happens at the intersection of uh, colonial bureaucracy and Indonesian yeah. nationalism. So what, uh, for the, um, like thinking about today, what are what are some policy implications that you uh, you know, that, uh, if you, you know, you're, you're, you're talking to bureaucracies and you're, you're working with it, that they want better governance. Like what are there things that you can take away from this about, um, how to do this differently or how to manage? This might be above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> so I think the first step is acknowledging that this trade-off exists. So for the last okay. 30 years, the line at the World Bank, at the IMF, at a lot of these institutions, based on research in political science and economics, is that moving a country from a system in which civil servants are recruited under patronage or clientelism towards one in which they're recruited under examinations is basically a normative absolute. There's only reasons to do it. Right. It's all, it's better. It's all good. Yeah. It's a, what we'd call a Pareto improvement. There's, there's no downside. And I think what I've been trying to, articulate in this research is that there is a downside um, and we should, you know, try and find ways to, to manage it. I mean, I think India, for instance, which has put in place the world's most ambitious system of quotas to ensure adequate representation of minoritized groups, 
that system, I think, was the outcome of India's experience with meritocratic recruitment in the late stages of British colonialism, right? And so I think this was their negotiated outcome. And I think Indonesia has only recently introduced the system, okay. and albeit only partially. You and said so I 20, think 2014, right? It was in this, this 2014, it was sort of rolled out. Yeah. It wasn't until 2018, 2019 that it was fully, fully okay. implemented everywhere. Um, there was some resistance in some regions to the system. So I guess this is to say, you know, I think, uh, I don't have the solutions, but I think the, the solutions will emerge as like this sort of conflict and, and the negotiation takes place. Um, I do think, you know, that one thing that I said earlier, it's a really small thing. Um, maybe it speaks to my lack of creativity in thinking of policy solutions. But, you know, I think residency requirements make sense. And this is a problem we have in the United States, by the way, of people who don't reside in municipalities and yet working in them. And, and this is a big problem in policing, for instance. So a lot of police officers right. don't live in the communities that they actually police. And this creates sort of incentives for, for bad outcomes, right? I think Indonesia should consider a, a similar policy, um, putting in place requirements that you reside in the districts where you're applying for a job, um, I think might be, might be a productive approach. Hey, well, um, we, uh, we're excited about your, your work. Would you, we'll, you'll come back later and share with us, uh, down the road, more, more findings. Absolutely. It's just a 20 hour flight away from Singapore. Yeah. So. We're a short hop, skip, and jump. <laughs> uh, well, I'll bring the, uh, I'll bring the, 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 the equipment to Singapore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You, I have a feeling we're going to be a lot of visitors. There's a lot of pent up demand for, yes. uh, yeah. For some Southeast Asia travel from all of us. Um, well, thanks again, Nick, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you again soon, hopefully. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track, Electric Can. And a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.